We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Having grown up in Poland, the newly ordained and now New Yorker, Father Adam Bucko participates in the daily worship and ministry of the Cathedral of the Incarnation and serves there to work in developing and launching the Center for Spiritual Imagination, whose vision is to reclaim the spiritual heritage of cathedrals as places of pilgrimage, holy hospitality, and spiritual renewal, and reimagine it for the 21st century. Prior to his time at the cathedral, and his ordination, he spent 15 years ministering to young people living on the streets of New York City, where he co-founded the Reciprocity Foundation. He also taught engaged contemplative spirituality in the US and Europe, and co-authored two books, Occupy Spirituality and the New Monasticism, focused on translating the gifts of the Christian tradition for a new generation of seekers and activists. He lives near the cathedral, and in his free time, he loves hiking, making simple vegan meals, and revisiting the Polish punk music of his youth. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share with you guys. So one of the ways we like to begin kind of diving into questions is asking how silence has been a part of your life and your spiritual journey. So silence uh, has always played uh, a very big part in my life. First of all, I was an only child and I grew up in a small little village with, uh, you know, not many people around. Uh, So the early years of my life, I would just simply spend a lot of time uh, by myself uh, walking among the trees and and, and contemplation, I would say, was just kind of a natural thing that I began uh, growing into. Um, And then later on, when I immigrated to the States. Uh, And, you know, we came here as undocumented immigrants as a result of all the craziness that was happening in Poland with the totalitarian regime kind of collapsing and etc. Then I felt like I needed to learn tools to formally uh, be able to enter silence. And that's how I ended up in a Hindu monastery, monastery, actually where I began learning contemplative practice and silence and et cetera. But at that time, I would say my silence initially was not a very healthy silence. Uh, It was a way for me to escape, uh, a way for me to disconnect from some parts of myself and especially from some parts of my trauma uh, and essentially just go into silence pretending that none of that other stuff exists, you know? Um, and, and it took quite a bit of work uh, in, uh, in therapy, but also kind of broadening my framework for spiritual life uh, to be able to bring all of myself into silence and just rest there uh, in the presence of God. You know, you mentioned that um, the inspiration of seeing priests fighting that regime in Poland and seeing um, some of them paying for it with their lives and you talked about how you saw that as saying yes to God um, has to mean saying no to everything that violates God's love and justice. 
And I wonder a couple things. I mean, now that you're ordained, do you kind of see that as this full circle of inspiration? And, and also, when did, when did you come to the States? How old were you? I came to the States when I was 17. Um, okay. and, and I came here in 1992. So I've been here for, for a long time. I'm 43 now. But yes, you know, I, I, I think that my initial experience in Poland was, and you know, I was a kid, so I didn't really understand a lot of things, but I remember being drawn to this ideal of priesthood. Um, and at that time in Poland, churches were the only free places where people were able to gather, where people were able to give voice to some of the longings that they have been carrying in their hearts, you know? Um, and there were two priests in particular that really had a big impact on my life. The first one was Father Jerzy Popiuszko, who was killed by the government. Uh, his deformed body was then shown on national TV. And, so, you know, I was a small kid. I was frightened when I saw that. Um, and then there was another priest who was his best friend, who was a parish priest at a parish where I grew up, where I was baptized. Uh, and that priest was killed. Um, and so something in between those two deaths that I kind of experienced, you know, something happened uh, in my life. And I remember having this experience as a kid uh, of like feeling into all of the chaos that was happening in my country, that was happening around me. And I remember having this impulse of just building an altar at home and trying to do what I saw priests do um, in church, you know, essentially kind of mimic celebration of mass. Uh, and I remember it was always a problem because I didn't have a proper chalice. And so, you know, it was always like, but I remember, you know, as a kid standing there wrapped in some kind of a white blanket and just being enveloped by this loving presence. And, and, and it kind of felt like, you know, even though everything around me is falling apart, nonetheless, there is this something, this, this almost like a motherly presence that, that, that is holding me and, and, and therefore it's okay for me to, uh, to be here, uh, to be alive and to, you know, to, 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 to continue with, with, with my life. Um, and, and I remember between, you know, feeling that presence and then seeing those priests, uh, that's where I kind of got the message that to be faithful to that presence and to truly respond to that love that I was feeling, I need to mimic those guys and I need to kind of follow in their footsteps. And the message of their lives was that saying yes to that presence of love means saying no to the violating system uh, of injustice that, that, that was pretty much, you know, uh, defining Poland at that time. Mm. Now I can say that growing up, it was a very difficult transition to, to work with the trauma that I experienced and then to develop contemplative practice uh, and then to move into action. I mean, that took me a long time. Uh, and it wasn't an easy transition because initially, I think my impulse was to just uh, check out. Um, and some of the contemplative writers, especially from the Hindu tradition that I, that I read, in some ways encouraged that kind of withdrawal, you know? And, and, and because I approached it with a 
kind of with a very specific kind of orientation, so to speak. You know, when I heard detachment, uh, um, what I really internalized was disengagement. Mm. And so visiting monasteries and, and engaging in contemplative life felt great because it was a way to, to, to withdraw and not deal. Um, and then at some point, uh, especially as I encountered um, some, uh, some kind of newly formed Carmelites, uh, people like, uh, uh, like uh, Tessa Bilecki, mm. um, I, I, I remember, you know, she, she, she said something that really made a big impact. Um, uh, uh, she said, you know, the first, the first step uh, on a mystical journey towards God is falling in love with life. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, falling in love with life, you know, mm. I feel like I'm in some kind of a spiritual coma. Uh, I don't feel fully alive. And so that was, I think, the first step towards integration uh, and then eventually towards engagement. How did you meet Tessa? So two years after I uh, came to, uh, to the States, or maybe three years after, uh, I simply went to her talk. She was on a, she was on a speaking tour. Uh, and, you know, we didn't become friends until like <laughs> much, much later, a decade and a half later. Um, uh, but attending her talk and engaging with her was was very influential. So I'm kind of curious if you can connect the dots for me, because it sounds like here you are in Poland and yeah. you're enveloped with this love and you're imitating priests, and yeah. then you're in a Hindu space. How how did you how did we go there? How did we get yeah, to that so, space? So what happened in Poland, you know, once the system collapsed which was in 1989, mm -hmm. uh, the church, the Polish church, uh, transformed almost overnight. And it went from being this kind of a motherly presence to uh, beginning to act almost like some kind of an abusive parent, mm -hmm. telling people who to vote for, you know, trying to replace the, the communist party and essentially hijack the whole conversation. Um, and so a lot of us young people, we simply decided to disengage from the church. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I never really rejected Christ, uh, but uh, we decided to disengage because uh, the church was just not very healthy. Mm. Um, you know, it, it essentially, as one Polish philosopher uh, priest, uh, uh, Father uh, Joseph Tischner said, the Polish church opposed totalitarianism and in the process it developed a totalitarian mind. I, I then became part of the youth anarchist movement um, and uh, the spirituality that, that was present in that movement was very much influenced by the East, mm -hmm. uh, by Hinduism, by yoga and by Zen. And so when I uh, got to the States and, you know, I felt pretty alienated, I couldn't speak any English, essentially after a couple of years, I kind of had a little bit of a breakdown, you know, uh, it was very rough being here. Um, I got on the Greyhound bus um, and uh, went to a ashram and that changed my life. And when I was there, uh, some of the Hindu monks, uh, said to me that 
you know, basically told me, uh, you know, our tradition is very nice, but all of this stuff that you're interested in is also present in your tradition. Why don't you start reading John of the Cross? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in that ashram, or, or maybe slightly before that, that I also uh, discovered the teachings of Father Beat Griffiths, um, who, who became a big figure for me. Um, and so that eventually took me to India to enter uh, this kind of Himalayan hermitage. Because, um, you know, at that point, I think also being a Christian, uh, centering prayer was around, John Main was teaching meditation, but it wasn't really that available. Um, you know, going on a Sunday to a church, especially to a Polish church, I mean, you would never hear anyone talk about that stuff. Uh, So I felt like the only way to receive some kind of a contemplative formation was actually in the East. And then I discovered all these guys like Father Beats Griffiths, Sister Vandana Mataji, who who became one of my first teachers, uh, Raimunda Panikar, Swami Abhishekthananda, all of those guys who combined East and West and articulated a Christian spirituality that was very, especially with Father Beat, that was very incarnational and embodied, but at the same time, that used some Eastern methodologies that I was trained in. Uh, so, so that's kind of how I reconnected with the tradition, you know? And in many ways, I mean, I don't know that I would ever be able to be a Christian if it weren't for Hinduism and that particular monastery and some of the guidance that I received there. It, it was a it was a huge gift. Yeah, Adam, how did you find your way into into the streets of Manhattan and working with young people who were not housed? Tell us a little bit about that story. So uh, this journey that I just described uh, led me to want to go to India and have the experience of of that Christian hermitage that Vandana Mataji was was managing at that time. Uh, And I was going to India, you know, I've read like all of the books by all the yogis and and I've met a lot of those, you know, holy men and women who were, you know, circulating America. Um, And so I felt like I was going to India. It almost felt like going back home. And then I arrived in the middle of the night and I've never seen anything like it, you know? Within minutes, I remember being dropped off at some place uh, near the New Delhi train station. Uh, I had this homeless girl who, who came up to me, took, took my hand and just walked with me, asking me to buy her something to eat. And you know, that's not a very unusual experience when you, when, when you go to India. I feel like many people have had it, but something happened. Uh, to me when that little girl approached me I felt like my whole operating system just kind of collapsed Um, and I went into this thing of uh, heartbreak and discomfort um, and just wanting to run away and I remember uh, I studied with this one Vincentian uh, a theologian in college uh, who, who, who taught contemplative spirituality and Christian mysticism. And he talked a lot about Henry Nouwen and this whole idea of staying with the discomfort, of staying with the pain. And, and, and so that's what I decided to, to do. So I 
eventually, uh, I knew someone who, uh, who was running an ashram in the slums uh, outside of Delhi. I went there. Uh, they knew this little girl. After a while, I decided to move in there for, for a few months. Uh, and that was really my, my, my initiation into, into work with, uh, with young people. Um, and you know, that, that community in the slums was essentially, it was a Christian ashram and pretty much everyone there was rescued from the streets. So you had little children, you had uh, elderly people, you had uh, people dying of HIV AIDS, you had uh, people with multi-drug resistance TB, with you know like maggots in their bodies and I mean people rescued with like in a very horrible shape and and it was a devastating experience for me to be there but I feel like something happened something broke and for a moment I got this sense of this is my home this is where I need to be you know their pain is my pain and so what do you do when you when you when when you know as Rashi Bernie Glassman said, when when you see your hand bleeding, um, you wash it, you you put some ointment on it, and 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 so I felt that that was kind of the response to to to, to simply enter that community and be with those people. Eventually, I got quite sick being there, and and came back to the states, um, and I just emailed one of the leading organizations that works with homeless youth on the streets of, of, of different cities. And I said, I just had this experience in India. Can you give me a job? And they gave me a job. And so that was how I then started working with homeless youth in the US, initially in Orlando, uh, where I was doing outreach on the streets, which basically meant that I, my job was to become part of the street fabric to develop relationships with the kids and then just be there whenever they needed help, you know? Um, so that was really my initiation. You know, I, I feel like I went to India to like get out of this world, but I was kind of brought back into it, especially into the world of pain. Um, and again, that was, that was a huge gift because it really changed my life. And it also allowed me to, to work with my own pain and my own trauma from my childhood. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. I'm really struck by um, just this theme of, you know, you've been sharing about a lot of teachers that have been an important part of your life. And now a lot of children and specific children that have really been an important part of your life and being a prophetic voice in your life, you know, that little girl in yeah. India being a prophet to you. And I wonder if you find that having some, some contemplation and silence in our lives makes us more able to see when the prophets come, when the prophets are, are speaking to us? I think so. 
I think that, and you know, for me, it was a learning process because I think that so much of my contemplation was kind of disengaged from the world that uh, it took some time. It took quite a few years actually for me. And that's when I moved back to New York and started, we started Tastagore and I started the Reciprocity Foundation, which worked with street youth. Um, I had this experience at some point where I realized that whatever I was doing, it was not working because I was showing up uh, as a person who had learned certain things and who was there to solve people's problems, essentially. And, you know, I mean, that worked to some extent, but, but I felt that something needed to change. And so the change for me was to essentially show up for each kid, just like I would show up for my contemplative practice. And at that time, what was my contemplative practice? My contemplative practice was to become aware of everything that was alive in me, both, you know, the joy, the heartbreaks, that you name it. Simply gather that, bring it to God and sit there in a state of receptivity and listening, inviting God to hold me. And just sitting there in a state of curious, not knowing, you know, kind of consenting to whatever work God wanted to do in my life. And the moment I started showing up that way, so I developed this routine that every morning, you know, we had a kind of interfaith meditation space in our center at that time. I would show up and do my practice and then treat every single person who came in as part of my prayer routine. So I would show up and be there in a state of curious, not knowing, paying attention to whatever was there, to whoever was there, uh, you know, the pain, the joy, showing up without any buffers. And so what started happening is that naturally it became about just like accompanying them into the depths of their pain and helping them to hold that pain. And then I, I, I remember that what, what started happening is that like, you know, if you go there, you just break with them. And then there would always be that something I call it an impulse of God that would just kind of emerge in the midst of us. Uh, and our job was just to consent to it. And, and that would do the work of healing both on me and on them. And it wasn't really clear who was helping whom, you know? And, and so that became really, that's what my contemplative practice became about. And that's why I kind of moved into a place where formal practice was very important, but the distinction between action and contemplation was no longer there because the goal was for every action, especially in my work with, with young people, to become contemplation. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, some days we can show up. <laughs> Some days we can't, but but that really became, but you know, what enabled me to even have a sense and ability to show up in that way, I think, was the years of of practice that I had before that. And 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 so I think that contemplative practice and silence, and especially training in receptivity, uh, I think 
can enable us to just be surprised by, you know, how God is speaking to us through people, through 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 events in our lives, through uh, through nature, you know. And, and I think in my life, especially, God has spoken a lot to me uh, through homeless youth, uh, through people who became, you know, my 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 real teachers, um, and and as you say, prophets, kind of calling me back. Um, to who I am supposed to be, because the truth is, you know, like a lot of our work with homeless youth was about helping them to discover their calling. But I can honestly say that they gave me uh, a place, this kind of an energetic space in which I was able to to discover my own calling and keep on rediscovering it and and keep on getting courage from them to to to, to say yes. Mm-hmm. And you reference you reference the topic of sacred activism in your book New, New Monasticism, mm-hmm. um, and you know we live in a world where it's often like you're kind of on one side or the other. You're either a contemplative or you're an activist, right? And and finding that balance and and hearing this this formulation that co- no contemplation can be activism, can be love, can be. Um, embodied in a present moment with other humans. Um, it's just a really, really beautiful thought to me. So Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel that that's very important to emphasize. I, I've had mentors and still have mentors who, who have spent most of their lives as hermits. And I mean, it's very clear that's their true calling. And, and even though they, they live away from you know, the world of social problems and, and, and all that, uh, most of them probably are holding that world on their heart as they engage with God on a daily basis, right? Um, praying for the world. Right, the paradox uh, of going away from the world to love it more deeply. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I think, and, and so clearly people are called to, 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 to that kind of life. I think uh, what I worry about is when it's people who are not called to that life uh, are advocating for contemplation that is completely disengaged. Uh, and I think that uh, maybe now is the time to emphasize that that contemplation and action, uh, both are important uh, and both can inform the other. And in fact, I think action can become contemplation. And you know, our tradition, our Christian tradition has struggled with that and still struggles with that. I think we have you know, this kind of an incarnational framework that is set up for, for integration um, uh, of, of the two but we've struggled with that uh, quite a bit. Uh, And I think now, uh, especially in the last couple of decades, uh, I feel like more and more contemplatives have been talking about action. I mean, even someone like Merton, who (laughs) even though he he lived in Kentucky, he was very engaged through his relationships with, with, I mean, in many ways, many of the most influential people uh, of the 60s and 70s have been uh, deeply um, influenced by him. 
and one only needs to listen. I mean, I love his, you know, the, the uh, I love uh, his uh, conferences to the monks. Mm. Um, and, 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 and there's one series on prophecy. I mean, it's pretty radical what he's advocating. Mm. Um, yeah. I, th- I think m- my question, because I know two of the books, you have Occupy Spirituality and then co-editor, right, of the new monasticism, right? Is that is that how that works or is it co-writer? Co-author. Co-author. Co-writer. Yeah. yeah. So in both of those books, we seem to, we're talking about this very topic here that like you seem to talk about activism and want to hold this contemplative space together. I guess what I really want to do for those people who, who don't know, could you lay out a little bit about what those books are about? You know, could you tell us what each of those individual books are about a little bit? Yeah. So first of all, uh, you know, I'm not really a writer. Uh, uh, I occasionally I like to put something out there because I like sharing ideas, uh, but uh, I don't love writing. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so I think the first book when I was invited by the first book is a book that I co-authored with Matthew Fox, and we basically were figuring out how to do a book together, even though we lived on two different coasts, you know? Mm. Um, and so we decided that, that we'll just have conversations and that it's going to be a book of dialogues, mm. kind of intergenerational conversation about what we saw emerging in the world. Um, and we called the book Occupy Spirituality. The, we started working on the book uh, before Occupy Wall Street happened. But as the youth movement was kind of coming together, we realized that a lot of the things that we were talking about were actually present in the Occupy movement in some way or form. So we kind of connected the dots. So the first book is really a conversation uh, between two people representing very different life experiences and and very different generations about uh, essentially how to live a spiritual life in a world that seems to be falling apart, how to show up and allow the pain of the world to penetrate our hearts, what to do with that pain, how to respond to that pain, how to develop a posture of receptivity, listening to that voice of God that I believe is, you know, we have access to and how to essentially allow that to, to direct how we will respond and how we will live our lives, especially as young people. Um, because the book in many ways was written for young people, for young people who were uh, telling us that they are born into a world that no longer really feels like home. Uh, they were telling us that they, their sense of the world is that this is hospital. Uh, of, 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 of broken minds, of broken bodies, of broken, broken systems. Um, and so our goal was to really offer something, a response to that. And the way that we wanted to offer the response was through a conversation, because we felt that a lot of the institutional narratives were falling apart. And so when institutions lose credibility, uh, why not go to human stories? Um, and, and we also felt that having a conversation was, was good because 
that means that we could invite other people into that same conversation. Uh, some of the publishers, you know, didn't really love the idea. Uh, we were told that dialogue books don't sell in America. And we even had a publisher who offered to rewrite the book and turn it into a how-to book for young people and spirituality. But I'm glad that we didn't do that. Uh, because I think as a result, uh, the book captured something that, that was happening at that time um, and responded to something that was happening to that, at, at, uh, at that time. So that's the first book. And, and it starts with our articulation of this kind of or a naming of a new spirituality that we felt was emerging among young people to, uh, you know, chapters on what's your calling are you living in service of compassion and justice uh, intergenerational spiritual formation uh, questions of mentorship new economics new monasticism reinventing uh, religion and etc we are encountering silence I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website, at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.